Welcome back to the golden age of optimism. My name is John Charles Harmon, and I'm using this podcast format to read my books into audio form through podcast. So if you want to hear the full-length book, you need to go to episode one of each season. The season seasons will be the books, and the episodes start with one and go through until the end of the book. Sometimes there's more than one chapter in the episode. I try not to read for more than, you know, 40, 45 minutes at the most, something like that. So we're going to start today with the first novel that I ever wrote. And I started this a long time ago, and the whole novel came out of a dream I had when I was a teenager, actually. And I did it all in handwriting, the whole book originally, and then I typed it. Then I gave it to a friend of my sister's who was a movie producer. I never heard anything from him, but later there was a movie produced that was similar. I don't know if they plagiarized my book or not, you know, to be honest, but makes no difference. So then I self-published it a while back. It's got a few errors in it. Someone made a criticism of some of the typos or something like that. But you have to understand, I'm a hobbyist writer. I'm not some famous author, and I don't claim to be some famous author. So I write because I like to write. And some of my stories, they're pretty interesting and pretty popular. And some of my books sell pretty well. So I don't need to make any more money from the sales of books. So that's one of the reasons I'm putting them all into podcast form. I'm also going to be reading a few chapters of other authors' books, authors that send me in books that I think you know, might be of interest to people that like to read. I've read literally thousands and thousands of books in my life. I enjoy reading, and I enjoy writing. Writing is very difficult. Anyone that's an author or a writer knows. It takes time, and you have to have a good story. I've had a pretty interesting life, so I have a lot of good stories. And a lot of the characters that are in my books are actually characters from my life to, in general, you know, not specifically. So we're going to start with my sci-fi book here, Octal and the Five Planets of Han. Let me just start with the prologue here I wrote. I remember someone made a criticism that this is not really a prologue, and I guess it isn't, but I wrote it down this way anyway. I began writing this book in 1985. I heard that if you wanted to become an author, it was a pretty good idea to start with a science fiction book. Why that is, I do not really know. It took about eight years to finish the book, and it was all typed on an old electric typewriter. I printed it out, and there it sat on a shelf gathering dust, I never even looked at the manuscript for at least 10 years or more. Soon enough, I had a computer and started writing on the computer. I wrote other novels, my novel, quote, Blood and Butterflies, unquote, which is fairly popular. It was much easier to write on a computer. But don't let anyone fool you. Editing tools on the computer are not perfected yet. 
Many years later, I pulled the typewriter manuscript off the shelf and began the arduous process of typing it into the computer. This proved to be a lot more difficult than I imagined, so I often only did a few pages a week. I have always been a big fan of science and new technologies. My degree is in Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology from UCLA, class of 1980. I have always enjoyed writing, but it has never been a career. Writers do not often make decent livings or get paid very well. Here in 2017, the average length of a novel has shrunk from 80,000 words 20 years ago to now under 50,000 words. People read and purchase fewer hardcover books than any time in modern history. Some feel that online digital media has brought this lack of reading about. Others think that our educational institutions have lowered their standards and not emphasized the importance of reading for both education and enjoyment. I won't express my opinion at this time. I think a good story is a good story no matter the time period. I write because I have stories to tell. Most science fiction, be it literature or media, is far beyond scientific probability. This seems to be an ongoing trend. I like to call it the, quote, toy story, unquote, phenomena. The common saying in Toy Story, to infinity and beyond, is actually an oxymoron. We have so much computing power nowadays that it is possible to show that, quote, anything, unquote, is possible. Our universe is just so large that really anything is possible. The reality is that we would be much better off to focus on what is probably, what is probable, focus on what is probable, not what is possible. Because the massive amounts of energy required to make a lot of things that we're working on that we see in science fiction into reality is highly improbable. Actually, for the betterment of our future as a race, the human race, on our small little blue-green planet here, we would be a lot better off to eliminate the word impossible and replace it with improbable so that we can focus more of our education and research money on projects that benefit humanity other than concepts that deceive humanity. The tremendous amount of computing power we have today has led governments and private industries to fund way too many basically worthless projects that will never be reality. This book was mainly created out of a dream I had when I was 12 years old. It is worthy to note that I predicted Wi-Fi in this book when I wrote it over 20 years ago. What I believe and what you believe in regards to alien life forms, visits from aliens, aliens' influence on human culture, well, it may differ, and that is probably good for all of us. Everybody has their own opinions. I'm a scientist, a kinesiologist, so I write to hopefully make you think, not to convince you of a theory, either with or without evidence. In all my literature, I try to teach with analogies, plots, and interactions to show the value of morality, devotion, and open-mindedness. I think those are good qualities to have. My other novels can be found at johncharlesharmon.com. Now we begin. 
There was never a beginning, only the flux of time and matter. Life evolved throughout our pulsating and endless universe in a myriad of forms. Naturally, communication expanded beyond individual planets. Travel and exploration touched realms of what was perceived as mystical. In reality, most of those perceptions were subjective and often unexplainable. Chapter 1, Mr. Kin. Five planets orbited the waning sun called Han. All of the planets were of more or less the same age and the same size. They circled their mother sun at nearly equal distances, yet miraculously their orbits never collided. Even more mathematically rare and visibly odd was that each planet had two moons. Now, some had bigger moons, others smaller, but they all had two. The odds of that happening have to be just outrageous, yet taking odd to another level is also the fact that even with all the similarities, the five planets had very different environments. Their geographical paths differed, and life evolved only on the planet Mara. The other four planets remained barren until the migrations began. The people of Mara lived in a lush green paradise. The planet was overall slightly warmer than our Earth. There were warm subtropical forests and huge snow-capped mountains. Clear streams flowed into numerous sparkling lakes. In actual size, Mara was about three-quarters the size of our Earth. Mara became overpopulated early in its evolution. In spite of the overcrowded conditions, the Marans lived in relative peace. The other four planets, Yi, Misa, Taijo, and Kulo, were thought of as the homes of strange and mystical spirits for as long as the Marans could remember. As modernization and technology developed, the myths faded away, and it was learned that all four of the planets had potential for migrations. It was discovered that no other life forms had originated on the other four planets, and therefore each planet would require unique methods to create environments that were habitable. Habitable, excuse me. Taijo Kin almost felt like a great warrior at times. This was not a common feeling for a Marin. As a matter of fact, it was not normal feeling for Mr. Ken at all, and he, he didn't feel this way too often. But he had been alone for way too long for any civilized creature, either of this earth or of an alien planet, so he spent a lot of time thinking. Now, as he was getting older, he did a lot more than just think. He also fantasized about being a great warrior. He imagined himself as a great warrior of the past, old tales of how the Marans fought off their rival to take control of the planet. Unfortunately, he knew too well that the past was long gone and that the fantasy was just a whim of his mind to kill time, time alone. He let his mind go back to his plans for the future. It was hard to concentrate, though, because he didn't want to ponder his dilemma. So, 
back to the great warrior. Mr. Kin smiled and ate some more of the sacred fruit. Mr. Kin came to the planet called Taijo when he was a young child. He was named after the planet because his father wanted to be one of the first immigrants to the new planet. The father was one of many workers who helped transform the toxic gases of the planet into breathable oxygen, an atmosphere similar to Earth. It had taken decades with the aid of robotic machines to transform the atmosphere so that it could sustain life. Taijukin's father came on to the project in the latter stages, and his wife had become pregnant during this time, so they decided if the child was a boy, they would name him after the planet. Now that the once barren planet had become suitable for migrations, it also became the home of Taijo, the child. Mr. Kin was quite different from his father. He was very reserved, thoughtful, and often lonely. The biggest difference between Taijo Kin and his father was that even though Taijo was lonely, he was never bored. Taijo saw his father when he retired, and his father did nothing. Just sit around and go to entertainment venues, nothing creative, nothing thoughtful, and nothing that had a lasting value. Still, Taijo remembered his father the day before he died when Taijo was only 17 years old. It was a sad day. Accidents happened, and even though he was aware of that, he never thought about it happening to anyone he knew, especially not his father. The transport vehicle malfunctioned, and it crashed. The universe was perfect because it was flawed and random. Taijo knew this, and He knew his relationship with his father had never been that perfect. Still, he honored his father, and he loved his father. Years passed, and now the main reason Taijo was never bored was because he was just way too wealthy. He was middle-aged for Marin and at the peak of his success. The times had changed, and he knew this was a crossroad, maybe a historical one. He had duties with his various corporations. He enjoyed his hobbies and a few close friends. The truth is that Mr. Kin was by far the wealthiest of Marns, and it all happened by good thinking and opportune luck. Because of his wealth and some outcries from certain aspects of Marn culture, he had to maintain a low profile, so He was almost never seen anywhere in public. His wealth enabled him to now be almost a complete recluse. And he was starting to like it. Mr. Kidd had inherited the foundation of his wealth from his father. After the death of his father, Taijo acquired old land contracts his father had won in a big card game before he left his company. At first, Taijo thought the land was far too remote and uninhabitable. So Taito just held on to the contracts for the first year. The second year, the Federation started contacting him, asking for higher tax payments. And Taito guessed the land must be worth more than what he thought it was worth, so, so he had it investigated. The results of the investigation were more than fruitful. 
Taijo found out that the Federation knew the land had vast deposits of precious metals and one rare mineral used in energy technology. The Federation had been trying to repurchase the land contracts for the past five years, but Taijo's father held out and said nothing to anyone. Taijo didn't like that he had to find out on his own, but he started to understand why. Thirty years later, and the mining operations were almost completely automated with the aid of state-of-the-art robotics. One month after Mr. Kent had found out that the Federation wanted his land, he formed a mining company. One of the mining company's first acquisitions was a Federation robotic company that was completely outdated. Mr. Kent's mining company grew exponentially with the aid of the best mining robotics. It was 30 years ago that Mr. Kin started his hobby and passion for personal robots, just as his wealth began to grow with the mining company. As his wealth grew, he purchased more and more land adjacent to his until eventually he owned almost all the land as far as anyone could see from the highest mountain. The operation was small compared to the surrounding land, but the operation headquarters was very large. The support staff was around 100 or so people, Marins, and they had state-of-the-art living quarters, so many of them rarely left. Not many of them ever saw Mr. Kin, though, and when they did, it was only for a brief discussions in small groups, always about certain aspects of the various operations. The vast majority of the operations were run by robots. The staff had multiple personal robots that controlled the automated mining operations. The personal robots at Mr. Kin's lavish palace were rumored to have been modified in various ways, but this was mainly just due to his reputation for reclusiveness. Because Mr. Kin was so far removed now from the Marin culture, he really had become somewhat of a legend that most Marins were not sure really existed. Mr. Kin's palace was also a highly rumored and ongoing legend to the Marin culture. Back on the home planet, in the largest cities where most of the wealthiest Marins lived, new rumors about the palace would surface at least twice a year. Of course, there were a number of older pictures that were taken more than 10 years ago in the satellite photos of the palace that showed it was there. But then again, many Marins believed this was just propaganda from the Federation and that the Federation actually ran the mining operations. Still, the old photos were impressive with the ornate walls of solid gold and silver a somewhat endless mixture of alloys and colors splattered with various finishes to the surfaces in conjunction with the lighting, a glimmering maze of halls and passages that only one who lived there would know led to quaint yet functional rooms. There were artful designs everywhere one's eyes looked. Etched metal walls and various forms of backlighting lent a feeling that time was slowing down. It was a peaceful place. 
You cannot help but stand and stare at wall after wall. The palace was so large that it would take at least one day to see all the various rooms and workshops. The most interesting rumor to the Morins was a rumor that was actually true. There were no doors or gates to the palace. Twenty years ago, Mr. Kin designed the palace. He had already experienced over ten years of nearly constant isolation as the mining operation was being set up. It was a very remote area, so there was no need for doors. He realized that staying with his workers at the main base, that they would all have the best comforts if his operations were to thrive, and he realized that the concept of security needed to be changed. In such an isolated area, there was no need for so many doors and gates. They were isolated, and they had personal robots. The spiraling entries were designed to keep out the elements. Visitors had come on space vehicles from the home planet or others, and the Marins that worked at the mining operations had to take an underground magnetic subway to Mr. Kin's place that was nearly 20 miles from the main mining operation. It was nearly impossible to get to the palace on foot because the terrain was scattered with large boulders and extremely arid landscape. The migrations were focusing on the other side of the planet, where the climate was much milder. Almost every day, there was a small group of Marns that came to visit Mr. Kin. Well, actually, they came mainly to visit the palace because rarely did any of them meet with Mr. Kin. The most interesting part was that these Marns that came were exclusively at the invitation of the corporation, and only rarely was any Federation official allowed to visit. There were both men and women that came to visit the palace, and the robots that were there showcased the showcase, were showcased. The visitors that came knew the main reason they were coming, and almost always were more than happy that they had visited. The palace was so lavish and ornate in its own right, similar to a a large museum on their home planet, it was worth saying you had seen the palace of Mr. Kin. But the robots Mr. Kin displayed for sale were mainly why the Marins came to visit. They usually ended up purchasing one or more of the new prototypes. Chapter 2, Octal. Mr. Kin's sexual robots were the top brand amongst Marns. Marns had migrated from their home planet and were enjoying an unprecedented surge in their personal comfort and wealth. It was just how the society had evolved. Marn culture had always been a highly sexual culture. They had early on become the dominant species throughout their planet. When the planet had reached a stage of ecological imbalances and environmental degradation, the Mars had not yet developed advanced technologies or space travel. They knew the other planets were habitable if the environments were modified. Yet, even though they knew the theory and science of how to do it, the full effort was not committed until almost the turning point when the destruction of their home planet was starting to happen, the Federation was forced to finance private green industries and technologies 
It was at this phase that birth control was mandated, philosophy changed, and leisure became dominated with sex. The Maran sexual urges only increased, and now the migrations were underway. It seemed that the need to experience adventures had enhanced the Maran sexual desires all over again. Recreation was easy. Artificial wombs were becoming popular, and the populace enjoyed more leisure time as robots did more and more of the work. The Marans were small creatures, about half the size of humans. They had larger hands and feet in proportion to humans. Some of their features were similar to ours, but the main difference was that they only had one eye with two larger than normal pupils in the middle of their bulging forehead. They originally had hair and in a way seemed a bit ape-like, but evolution had rid them of any hair other than on their back, the backs, their backs and the backs of their hands and feet. They were slow-moving and peaceful creatures. They often stopped to pause and think before they continued walking wherever they were going. Almost all of their aggressive traits had disappeared over the 150,000 years of their evolution, yet they were still evolving. At least Mr. Kin knew he was still involved, evolving, at least that's what he thought. With the continued phase of the migrations, Marans were becoming increasingly independent and open-minded, especially the ones living on the outlying planets. From a lack of space to too much space, the Marans were changing their belief systems. The amount of Marans acquiring and creating wealth was on an unparalleled rise, and this also strengthened the Federation because of taxes they could take in. It was the beginning of a golden age for the Marans, and most could feel the excitement of the times. It had been rumored for quite a while now that Mr. Kin preferred the company of his robots to that of other Marans. Now, Mr. Kin's closest friend, Kafta, knew the rumor was even truer than anyone ever could imagine. This was only recent, though, and 100% due to the new prototype. This prototype was far beyond any technologies most could ever imagine. It had been over five years in development and then redevelopment. By far, it was one of the most secretive projects that Mr. Kin had ever undertaken. Mr. Kin always woke up early. He liked to walk out to his patio and watch the sunrise early in the morning. He usually wore a purple or dark blue robe, the colors of his company and the only two colors that he actually wore. He was alone in the morning and he, he liked it that way. His personal robots were at his beck and call, but he liked to have plenty of time to himself. He liked to think, and he liked to plan. When he looked at his communicator, he saw he had a note from his friend Kafta. To my dearest friend, Mr. Kin, thank you ever so much for graciously letting me be the first of your friends to spend time with your newest prototype. Octal is an appropriate and lovely name for her. I compliment you on selecting the name 
Believe it or not, I have found myself becoming very much attached to her on, on more than one level. I think you would agree this may not be appropriate behavior for us Marns, but under the circumstance and due to the fact that you asked me to evaluate the prototype to the best of my ability, I have to let you know my feeling. I am not sure this is a good or bad factor and with this prototype to go to the market, but I think it is an important subject to discuss at a later time. She is indeed an incredible woman, if I may call her a woman and not a robot. Actually, if I may be frank, I could almost end the evaluation on that statement, and I am sure you would understand why. Her movements, behaviors, and communication skills are far beyond anything I have ever seen. You did diligent work in keeping this project secret until now, and I'm honored to be working with you on this project. We must meet in person soon. I know there must be other things you have to tell me. Unquote. After reading the communication, Mr. Kint sat on a small black marble table and looked out at the desolate horizon. He could see one of the air transport vehicles taking off from the mines in the far distance. The processed metal was being exported to the home planet of Mara. He thought to himself, quote, the mines will create wealth for centuries, but what will that mean to me long after I am gone, unquote. Robots had been in use in Maran culture long before Mr. Kin was born, but it is only after Mr. Kin purchased the robot company for his mining operations that his experimenting with robots became a hobby. His hobby became almost as lucrative as the mines. He was constantly experimenting with various models and refining them for his own needs. When he entered the lucrative market of personal and sexual robots, it was right at the height of the migrations. The advanced crews, the immigrants, and vast amount of new space increased the demand for robotic labor and, and also robotic company. As the robots became more advanced, they also became more responsive but still lacked true emotions. Eventually, they had advanced to the level of basic servants with talents and some skills. Aktal exhibited a new generation in robotic technology, at least a generation ahead of anything else that had been built, and Mr. Kin knew it. He had planned it that way and brought in the best of the best to work on the project. He, he spared no expense and made sure the planning for each phase included breakthroughs in technologies that he directed the memory capacity alone was unprecedented for a personal robot. What was most incredible was that Octal was a smart machine. She was able to pick up, compartmentalize, store, analyze, and discard data that she constantly scanned from radio and Wi-Fi frequencies. Even more advanced was that Aktal could pick up complex waves emitted from emotional responses, including heat, eye movements, body movements, and other sensors. 
data was continuously absorbed from the environment and was discriminately stored, discarded, or ignored, no matter what the situation she encountered. In reality, as Mr. Kin stared out over the horizon from his small patio, he felt uneasy about what the future would hold for him. He knew he had to be scared, but at the same time, he knew his resolve had to be strengthened. He knew that the robot he had spent so much time in developing was indeed not a robot at all, not a Marin, but a unique, tender, compassionate, and continually changing being. It was the first time this had been done in Marin culture. Everyone was under the belief it was at least a century or more away before the issue of robots gaining rights would have to be legislated. Atal looked much different physically from Mr. Kin's other personal and sexual robots. For reasons only known to Mr. Kin, he had modified her to have two eyes instead of the large single Marin eye it was one of the main points Mr. Kent had insisted on when he instructed his development team. When asked by the other scientists why he was making her appear in this way, Mr. Kent always responded that it would be needed to have the two eyes apart to increase her visual capabilities and other sensory functions. Some of the scientists told Mr. Kent that this would not be good from a standpoint of marketing, and Mr. Kin always responded that the new prototype would break into new yet undiscovered markets. No one thought of doubting Mr. Kin and his logic, as he had proved time and again his genius. As the process evolved and the prototype started to come together, the team could see that Octal broke all the regulations and limits that were actually being allowed by the Federation at the time. Everyone knew if any of them broke the code of secrecy with Mr. Kin, that they would never work for him again. Now that Octal was nearly complete, the actual final product was not totally known by the people that had worked on the project. The final stages of the project were covered and even more confidentiality and known only to a few. The small groups that were aware of what this prototype had become knew they had entered a new realm of technology that most likely would change Marin culture forever. Octal could be a teacher, a companion, and a highly skilled operator of all kinds of equipment. She also had the capacity to lead and control the other robots around her. She was the perfect sexual companion and mate, either male or female. Mr. Kin knew once the prototype was mass-produced, it would sell millions and all other personal robots would become antiquated. He also knew he would have to have her approved by the Federation with very strict terms. And this is not something Mr. Ken liked to think about. The good thing was that all the years of solitude had honed Mr. Ken's senses to think and feel far into the future, so he was in no hurry to mass-produce his new prototype. 
He was well aware of the many problems that could arise within Mormon culture if the prototype was able to pass Federation guidelines and be sold into the society. What Mr. Kin knew that no one else knew, not even the scientists that were closest to the project, was that Octal was being developed by him for a specific purpose. Yes, her so-called intelligence was unique, but she had other qualities that to him made him think of her as a precious and rare jewel, a gem that you liken to fondle and admire, yet too valuable to reveal to others. The only reason he had sent her to Kafta for the short time he did was because it had scared him how fast that he had actually become attached to her. She had become the perfect friend and companion in a very short time. He liked the feeling, but it also overwhelmed him like nothing before had ever overwhelmed him in his life. He wanted to see if she had the same effect on Kafta. Now he could tell she had. Mr. Kin was excited to sit down and talk face-to-face with Kafta. It would be an interesting conversation to be continued.